Koos. I'm a second year OBGYN yeah. resident at WashU. Yeah. And I'm joining Dr. Hagman today to talk about wellness and feedback and how they're intertwined in our career. Hi, Dr. Hagman. Hey, Dr. Chris. How are you? Good. How are you? Wonderful. Fun day of clinic for both of us. Right. Like. <laughs> it was. Excellent. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for joining us here on the Whistle OBGYN Rocks podcast. So We're happy to be here. here. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> um, and I am excited to introduce you as the new resident wellness representative for our residency. Um, Yay. Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, well, tell us about that. What? Um, let's start with that, yeah. and then we'll jump into you a little bit more. But tell us what this wellness role means to you and, and how we can promote wellness and residency. Yeah. So I think this is a really new position that's really an exciting addition um, from the GME office. So they've tried to implement, it sounds like over the last couple of years, a more formal curriculum and wellness board into residencies for just for for OBGYN and across Barnes. Um, And so as a wellness representative from our residency, I will join representatives from other programs, uh, both residents and fellows, and meet with GME wellness faculty and staff on a monthly basis to kind of try and see what things maybe have worked for other residency programs, what needs our residency program has. Um, and then I think our program has had a less formal, less BJC forward wellness representative now for some time, which has been the amazing Hannah Ware. Um, so <laughs> she has been promoting wellness in our residency in that capacity. So I think this will be kind of emerging of those roles, both trying to figure out within our department how we can promote wellness and then also take the things that we have, you know, issues with or successes that we've had back to the GME as a whole um, to hopefully make Barnes in general a more well place for residents. Yeah. And can you speak to what that definition is for you? Yeah. I know it's, it's always different yeah. for everyone. I think that's something, I think wellness is such a hot topic and has been for some time. I remember even during residency interviews, I was asked this question because as a medical student, I was actually um, sort of like the wellness representative social chair for my class for all four years of medical school. And so I got that question a lot. And I think, I think even, even today, I don't think there's a perfect answer for that because I think wellness for everybody is different. In my mind, wellness is balancing work and your life in a way that is allows you to be most successful in both of those places. So I think in medicine, especially, we can really put a lot of emphasis into our career, into our work life. And I think residency really is a special challenge that takes away the time we have to invest in the things outside of work that really fuel us and make us want to get up in the morning and make us energized for work. So I think it's that balance and trying to figure out how to best do that. I think it's more than just, you know, a residency-sponsored yoga class here and there, which in and of itself right. is awesome, but that's not that's not sustainable wellness. And I think um, it's really exciting to see BJC take on that more holistic approach to wellness and say, you know, they met with each of our residency groups last year and said, what kind of things can we do to help you be more well? And my co-residents said things like, give us parking that's closer to the hospital Can we have more protected time for maternity and paternity leave? Um, You know, small things that 
really mean a big difference in the long run when we have such minimal free time. So I think it's both those kind of softer, more team building activity type things, but also figuring out how to support residents and whatever it is that makes them well. So I think that's really different for everyone. And I think that's what I'm really hoping to try to be able to accommodate as our wellness representative. Well, thank you for doing that. And also, I would just like to echo how problematic parking can be. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it can really ruin your day, right? You're already having to get here so early and then you're parking however far away. Right. Um, And I think from the, you know, administrative side of things, it's so hard because Barnes is just a really big place. And so there's only so many places you can put a parking garage. And so I, I think it's actually a big consideration, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> something that doesn't come into whether you want to go to more a community program or a big academic center, but the parking usually isn't better at these bigger academic right. centers. Right. It? It's such a silly, <laughs> it seems like such a silly thing, but it's something that impacts everyone, not just residents, faculty and staff. And the sonographers in the ultrasound department were telling me how hard it is for them to find parking that allows them to get to work quickly on time. And it sounds like such a small thing, but I think those daily life things can really play a big role in wellness, you know, and giving you mm-hmm. the max, maximizing the amount of time that you're not at work in whatever way that is. And I think that can be one of them. <laughs> well, good luck with that. I really, <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah. In terms of wellness for you outside, like when you, do go to recharge what do you like to do yeah go to so for me wellness has always been really incorporated with like exercise and physical Mm -hmm. wellness um I played competitive volleyball for all of like middle and high school and then didn't play in college and when I stopped playing team sports I fell in love with um spinning and indoor spinning and then after that yoga and going to group exercise classes and kind of that both that physical wellness for me and just getting my heart pumping and all those good endorphins, but also just being around other people outside of whatever I was doing. So when I was studying for the MCAT, going to a yoga class with my friends who weren't pre or when I was in medical school, spending time with my friends just generally in Indianapolis who worked in other areas and reminding myself that there's a world outside of whatever the very stressful, high-paced world that I'm in from a career perspective has always been really helpful. So just before this, I got finished with a Peloton ride. So it's just that little bit of, you know, those endorphins I think are so helpful for me personally. And I think, I think that's kind of what I was mentioning with wellness, you know, that is not everybody's cup of tea. Some people have really awesome, you know, creative outlets and like Mm. art or spending time, people who have families. I think wellness is just so different for everyone, but for me, it's definitely taken a big role um, in terms of physical well-being. And then I think just having a strong social network has been really important for me my whole life. And being an extroverted person, it's been really nice to have co-residents that I enjoy spending time with outside of work to decompress with. So that's another big one for me. Nice. Um, well, you're going to have to take us back to your competitive volleyball <laughs> years. Um, so how did you pick volleyball and, and tell us what kind of team lessons you yeah. through volleyball? I, I mean, cutting to the chase, I think that everybody should play team sports at some point in their life. I think that it's uh-huh. such an important thing in like formative years. I tried out lots of sports as a kid. Um, 
my dad is really athletic and really loves baseball. And he thought I would fall in love with softball. And that wasn't quite it for me, but I tried soccer. I tried basketball. And then the thing I really liked about volleyball is that it was that it's a, a team sport that's pretty fast paced, but you're everything is in such a kind of small setting. So basketball and soccer, you're running up and down the field, but it's just really interesting how coordinated you need to be with your teammates in volleyball specifically. Um, And of Mm -hmm. course, being, you know, a young teenager, I also loved hitting the ball really hard. So that was always a fun thing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was, it's hard. And there's both an aspect of like physicality to it. You have to be quick and you have to be able to jump, but it's very mental as well and very technical. Um, And I just absolutely loved it. I played all year round, both for my college team or sorry, for my high school team and then my club team. Um, and then ended up deciding to go to school for school rather than volleyball. And I was definitely not mm-hmm. tall enough to play it at Penn for volleyball, but that was okay. I still, like I said, then I found spinning. And I think, I think from team sports, you just, you just learn to, I think you learn to accept failure kind of early on um, in a very fast paced fashion. So I think with sports in general, if you mess up on the court, you have to get back up and keep playing. The game's not over. Your team is still there. And then when your teammates mess up, you have to be there to pick them up and kind of recharge. And I think it taught me resilience um, and also how to perform under pressure when there's lots of people watching you and you make a mistake. And I think a lot of that really translates into medicine. And I think it's not surprising that a lot of our a lot of my friends and co-residents have had similar experiences in whatever way, because the operating room is not so dissimilar from a volleyball court in that way. So I think that that was a really good experience for me as a kid. Yeah, I was just thinking about OB-GYN residency, the team sport. It is, absolutely, in every sense of the word. Wow. Tell, um, like, what do you see as the biggest comparisons there? I mean, like you said, yeah. the operating room, but I was just thinking about coordinate, how coordinated your effort needs to be even on the floor management. Right. And, and I think that OB is definitely, obviously any surgical field has a lot of like physical and technical skill that have to happen. But with OB specifically, like if you even just think about the labor and delivery room, like you have the nurse kind of acting like the coach for the patient and coaching her through pushing. You have the patient who is doing this incredible physical feat. And then you have the physician who's both coaching the patient, but then also coaching themselves and the rest of the physician team. So typically, you know, you have an intern who's delivering and a chief who's there talking them through it and an attending who's supervising and then a surgical tech who's bring all the instruments in, like, especially when you think about um, someone who comes in, we call them the ready roomers who come in and have a delivery so Mm -hmm. quickly. It's just such a team sport between not just the physician team, but the entire staff. And if something, if someone isn't there, you notice it and you feel it and everybody has their role to play. And it's so essential. And I think you have to learn how to play on that team in order to be successful um, for yourself and for your patients. Well, how did you first find that love for OBGYN and, and what do you feel like drives you to get up every day and keep coming to residency? Yeah. Um, I mean, this, this sounds like you're going to, you really feel like you are a part of this team and that's awesome, but you know, take us back a little bit further to when you first got that bug. for. Yeah, OBGYN. I definitely came to medicine and OBGYN. They're a little bit different of a route. I was a um, health and societies major in undergrad 
And so that training was mostly kind of like a public health major, but with a lot of medical anthropology and medical sociology interwoven. And my first volunteering when I moved to Philadelphia, where I went to school, um, was at the Planned Parenthood in downtown Philly. And I was, I actually worked as an abortion handholder there. So I went with patients um, because there were no visitors allowed in the Planned Parenthood rooms. So I sat beside patients during their procedures and held their hand and talked to them before, during, and after, and just kind of accompanied them on that journey. Um, and I just encountered so many amazing people. So the first thing I thought about was medical anthropology, like listening to women's stories mm-hmm. and the barriers that they had had to accessing healthcare, the from a social perspective, and then even interpersonal, especially as it relates to patients who are seeking abortion care. Um, I just found it so fascinating that people were willing to share that intimate story with me and trust me with it, and that I was able to kind of provide at least some solace in a really hard place. Um, and I think it was from that experience that I said, you know, I'm really interested in this from a policy level and from kind of that anthropology anthropological side, but then being actually in the clinic, I was like, no, I want to be the person who provides this care because I think that the type of people who provide care makes such a difference. And I saw both good and bad examples um, when I was doing that volunteering Mm -hmm. of people who really listened to patients and people who came to work and got their work done. Um, So the science, I also, you know, enjoyed to some degree, but it was more about the human side of medicine and the patient-centered face-to-face part that we have in OBGYN. Um, and I think I think OBGYN specifically, almost more than any other specialty, you have such an intimate relationship with your patients. You're there for the best days of people's lives and the absolute worst days. Um, and when people think back on their stories in obstetrics and gynecology, our faces will be both in those horrible times and those amazing times. And I think being able to walk with people in that is such a privilege and it makes it really easy to come to work when we get to do that every day. Research project that you did. I am. Um, Dr. Madden has been an awesome mentor for me. And as I kind of mentioned with the things that got me interested in OBGYN, I'm pretty, pretty set on family planning. I just really like, and I've talked to Dr. Omar talk about this too, when I was on my REI rotation, I just am really interested in how policy impacts healthcare so uniquely in OBGYN. And I think family planning gives a lot of, um, a lot of training in that, right. And I actually was able to do the ACOG Congressional Leadership Conference two weeks ago and met with, met virtually with some of our local and state legislators about issues impacting women's health. And I found that made me want to get up and go to work the next day. Like that made me so excited and wanted to like get my boots on the ground and get out there and be able to tell legislators uh, all the things that we experience on a daily basis and kind of make that macro level impact. So I would look forward to kind of having more training in that and more opportunity to be an advocate um, as a family planning fellow and hopefully staff someday. I'm wondering while listening to you, if there's ever a time when you actually don't feel energetic or enthusiastic about your, uh, yeah, I think I absolutely do. And I think, I think it's easier to get get down down when you're really, really tired. Um, (laughs) I think that, you know, on the rotations where I get home at eight or 9 PM and have to turn around and wake up at 4 AM or 5 AM 
that is really hard to do. And it's really hard to bring energy every single day. And I think that's where my co-residents come in. I feel the reason that I wanted to come to this program specifically was because I just felt really at home with the people here. Um, And I think that Mm -hmm. without Mm -hmm. that, it would be extremely difficult. Um, And, you know, I think something kind of back to wellness a little bit, something amazing that our residency program has implemented is our class-based support groups. So, you know, for me this year, my AP rotation was really, really challenging. Um, And we had a support group kind of in the middle of that where I was able to share that with my Mm -hmm. co-residents and to hear them all kind of echo that they were feeling the same way and that even though we all came here to help people, sometimes when you get down, it's really hard to do that. Um, and I found it so helpful to just be able to be really honest with my co-residents and have them say, you know, no, I'm feeling the same as you. And that doesn't make you a bad person or a bad doctor um, was such a such a relief, I think, because you feel guilt if you don't have the energy that you normally did. And I think, you know, that is where the people come in. And I think my advice to anybody who's thinking about residency mm. is to pick somewhere where you have people who will pick you up like that because it's just so essential the GME staff psychologist who also does do private one-on-one like formal counseling. It's not group therapy, but it's a support group that's mediated by someone who has training um, in psychology and kind of puts things into perspective for us. And also it's confidential and she doesn't go back to our program director or other residents to say what we've said. And I think that's such a freeing space that's protected time during our teaching that we can have everybody except for the person who's on nights attend. Um, and my classes just absolutely love that. And we've echoed that to, to Dr. Cabral, who's the mediator, and then also to our program and GME as a whole. It's just been so, so helpful. I can understand why, you know, for example, internal medicine that has five times the number of residents per class that we do, it doesn't lend itself to that same kind of intimate support group. Whereas I think smaller probably often surgical programs like you are interacting Mm -hmm. with each other on such a deep constant level that I think it probably has a little bit more weight whereas if you were in a bigger program it might not be as helpful but GME definitely does offer those counseling services for free from people like Dr. Cabral um, or Dr. King Easterling who are the two staff psychologists for GME that anybody can seek out and um, I think that that resource has been a huge improvement from um, the GME level for our residency. Now, we wanted to talk a little bit tonight about the importance of feedback and how feedback is both given and received in residency. And I think coming back to your volleyball days when you were saying that you learn to accept failure early on when things are happening kind of right out in the open on that right. court and you've got to pick up your teammates, but also just, you know, if you don't serve the ball right, everyone's going to see it, right? Yeah, it's, it's um, interesting kind of so this is also tied into talking about the support group. This is actually something that to wellness, we talked about well, um, in our support group in. this week, the second years, um, relating to feedback and or lack thereof. A lot of us were talking about the anxiety of moving on to third year. Um, And most of our anxiety, which obviously impacts our wellness, is related to this. Mm -hmm. Pretty much everybody echoed this idea of, am I good enough? Am I adequate? Am I performing at the level of my peers? And a lot of us, you know, shared that we have this great or this great program of my tips where we get 
you know, real-time feedback on surgery, but it's not typically in the context of, you know, are you performing at the level of your peers right now? And we don't always have (laughs) the opportunity to see that. And I think everybody to an extent in medicine probably suffers from imposter syndrome at some point. Um, And all of us were kind of saying, you know, sometimes we wish we had more feedback to say, am I doing enough? And then on the, on the Mm -hmm. flip side, it's kind of like, well, what would, how would I feel if the answer was no, that I'm not performing at the level of my peers? Would that be helpful or hurtful? Um, And I don't know that we came to an answer for that, but I do think feedback is very much so intertwined um, in residencies in general, just because so much of our performance is subjective in that way and, and is interpreted by our, our, you know, upper level residents and fellows and attendings because who have experienced it and who have worked with us for so long, because we can't always judge our own performance as we're learners. So I think it really is important, an important part of wellness. Now, Dr. Koos and I are joined by Dr. Kenan Omertag for a book club discussion on Thanks for the Feedback by Sheila Heen and Douglas Stone. And I, I think I shared with you, Lauren, like a Cliff Notes version of it, right? So, um, I was really struck by that book in that there are, they talk about three types of feedback and I think it separating it out has been really helpful for me. So coaching, evaluation, and appreciation. And I think you can, if you can probably think about any feedback you've given, it could fall into any of those categories and we need all of it, but sometimes it feels like we might be getting too much of one versus the other, or you go seek out evaluation, but what you really get is appreciation, like, oh, great job, or it was great to have you in the case today. Um, But you are thinking, why didn't that bladder flap go as well as I thought it should or something? Um, So is there a little more evaluation that you could have gotten or something like that? I think sometimes in surgical feedback, it's hard to just always evaluate and I don't know. Anyway, that separation of coaching, evaluation, appreciation has been a helpful category for me. Um, thoughts on that category? Does categorization? Does I think you definitely make a good point that I think it's really hard sometimes to give evaluate evaluation feedback or coaching feedback, um, especially as I'm you know now second year and when medical students ask me for that, it is really hard to give that feedback. I think it's a lot easier to say these, to give the appreciation feedback because it feels good to give it. And you assume that you're making someone feel good too. And I don't think anybody is out to try Mm -hmm. to make someone feel badly, but sometimes evaluation or coaching feedback can be, can come across as a little bit more critical. Um, And yeah, I think, I think what you said is right. Like it's all necessary, but something that we were talking about also in our support group is that sometimes when you get that coaching or evaluative feedback and you're not expecting it, maybe you were expecting you were going to get appreciation feedback. The automatic response is (laughs) defensive when you feel like if your, your skill or your personality has been questioned, even when that's not the intent. And I think that's where feedback becomes challenging when it's not the expectation that 
of the type of feedback we were asking for. So just like what you said, if you get appreciation when you are expecting evaluation or when you get evaluation, if you're expecting appreciation, it's hard to know to always expect that unless you're kind of thinking about it in those categories. Yeah, and I, I agree. And, you, you re, and the book does a good job of really articulating how, you know, the feedback receiver can kind of reframe the question, the, the feedback kind of conversation to say, you know, I really appreciate the, you know, appre I, I appreciate the appreciation you're bestowing upon <laughs> me, but um, I'm looking for how I'm, can you say a little bit more about how I'm performing as compared to my peers? Um, so I think the book does a good job of articulating that. It also does a good job of talking about um, this idea of identity triggers and relationship triggers, which Dr. Coos is kind of alluding to in the sense that, you know, someone might give you feedback and you're like, well, man, this person is, they don't know what they're talking about. Or um, you, that would be an example of a relationship trigger. Like you have a relationship with this person and you might have some bias of them because you don't trust them or you think their motives are maybe a little more clandestine or not immediately transparent. I mean, that's human nature. Um, so you're triggered based on the relationship. And then sometimes you can be triggered based on your identity as who you think you are. Um, and you might receive the feedback in a way that maybe is dissonant from the type, you, you might receive the feedback in a way that you think that is challenging to you. So I've really liked uh, for, you know, and not that this is like some book book club review <laughs> and everyone needs to go get the book, but actually everyone should read the book because we're in the business for all intents and purposes of providing <laughs> feedback and receiving it at all levels. Um, and I wanted to make another comment about the three kind of dimensions of coaching, evaluation, appreciation, because I am someone who gives a lot of appreciation feedback. Um, and I have learned how to give coaching feedback because, yeah. you know, Dr. Coos talks about her volleyball experience, you know, Dr. Hageman and, you know, the running and I, I love basketball. I grew up playing basketball on teams and those team sports and, you know, individual um, achievements, you kind of respond to some form of coaching or at least you have some experience with some form of coaching. And to me, I'll tell people when I'm doing, when we're doing egg retrievals, I'll just say things like, hey, do this, do that, do this, do that. Hey, I want to see you do this. But I don't, I view that as coaching in the vein of what my experience with coaching was as, in, in sport. But I always tell people, hey, I'm going to give you feedback that's coaching feedback. I don't, you don't necessarily need to respond to anything I'm saying. Just hear what I'm saying and take it for what it's worth and keep moving. Um, but I think it's really important for the um, feedback giver to really think about what type of feedback they're giving before they give it and, and even explain to the receiver, hey, I'm going to be giving you this kind of feedback. Please let me know if you want, to, if you want a different type. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think those are the conversations we should have. <laughs> I just think, well, I agree, Kenan, but sometimes it's really hard and, you know, when... I think as Dr. Chaudhary was yes, saying in yes. our she really to excellent yeah. Rothman lecture, like in that operating room, 
it can be extremely difficult to be like, okay, right now I'm right. teaching you and I'm going to coach you and I need to do it right now because we're bleeding and like everything's going, falling down. And like, I might raise my voice a little bit, but please don't worry because <laughs> I am just trying to no. respond to my own adrenaline that's pumping away. And like, you cannot put the words right then. <laughs> um, so that part, I think that's a really challenging mm-hmm. part about operative feedback and coaching. And, you know, then the moment it's heightened and then the case is over and there's a little bit of relief right. that comes with that. And sometimes you just got to get out of there. <laughs> we all have to take a break and go away. And then we have to do the my tips. And then, um, I don't know. You know, it, I just think that I, I do love the framing. I just, I think it can be difficult in the moment when things get a little yeah, bit and I think, you know, crazy. Well, I think, yeah, I, the, the so, individual I scenario, that's tricky, right? But that. if we're all operating under the same and, and not operating like in the <laughs> OR, but if we're all functioning under this feedback paradigm of yeah. evaluation, <laughs> appreciation and coaching, then we can say, okay, cool. You know, um, Dr. Hageman is coaching me or I, I'm, I'm what, what she's telling me is really coaching feedback or we're trying to work together as a unit to do this. And honestly, it may not even be feedback as much as it's just direction um, in, in the, in the heat of the moment. Um, so, right. so right. and then later there would be an opportunity or at some point down the road to have a more formal feedback exchange. Um, I don't, but I think just the, just thinking of feedback in these three dimensions, I think is, oh, if, if everyone was doing that, I think that's a win. That's a simple win in and of itself. I also think that something that you're kind of saying, but not saying about this coaching feedback is that when you're saying I'm giving coaching feedback, that you're just talking about the procedure without any like value judgment ascribed to the person that you're giving feedback to. And I think that, I think that our anxieties about ourselves and yes. the probably kind of that identity idea, we always assume that feedback is somehow, I think the automatic assumption of most residents is that negative feedback is somehow a value or like a judgment call on our performance overall or our, how good we are as a doctor because we're all trying to be good doctors and I think that's where it takes mm-hmm. a lot of work on our part as feedback recipients to separate that and I think sometimes even just you know maybe nobody not everybody has a lexicon of this coaching or feedback type paradigm but to say you know I'm just this is not like a judgment of your skill overall right now. I'm just going to teach you how to do this procedure and then giving that more summative feedback at the end of the case, like Dr. Hagman said, to try to just separate out the stress of trying to read between the lines or interpret what type of feedback is being given in the operating room and then just operating. (laughs) I think that we all have to just remind ourselves of that in our heads as we're receiving feedback. And to be, and to Oh, go ahead, Dr. Hageman. I'm sorry. And I think, oh, no, no, I just think it's, it's tough because as we've come into, you know, we've made it through a lot of hoops so far in our life, right? As doctors, we've kind of grown up being positively evaluated all of our life um, in many ways, right? I think that's why you're saying team sports and, you know, I think in some ways some, you know, musical um, competition or like all of the different things that have just kind of forced that immediate negative feedback on people really help people in these settings of residency where all of a sudden things are 
moving really fast and they're really hard and they're hard in many different ways. And if that looming question is, am I good enough? Um, any feedback can be felt as a personal judgment, like you're saying, Lauren, and that's that we have to just put that out of the way, you know, like once I, I think if we can just let that go and say, we're really all just trying to improve. It's not about, it's not a personal judgment. It's about, you know, that specific procedure or something like that. But it's so hard because I think we, we make it personal. It's just who we are, right? We're, t- we're taking a lot of personal. I also, I think in um, medical training, you know, what, from, what from college and on anybody who's <laughs> made it way. to the point in their right. career to be a physician has like some maladaptive behaviors of thriving on positive feedback, you know, like we, because you've had so much success <laughs> at some point in your life where it feels good. Like yeah. it feels good to do well. Yeah. It feels good to perform well when you work hard. And I think it kind of, this is where I think feedback crosses over with wellness, where I think we have to be able to find that happiness and that validation outside of our career, because otherwise when you're not getting positive feedback, then like what else is there? And I think that's the challenge. Yeah, the identity piece is huge. Um, I mean, just who we are and finding other outlets uh, to, you know, when you're stuck, I think it can be very helpful. About how we see ourselves one way. And in fact, (laughs) until the Zoom world, we never really saw ourselves. Um, (laughs) You know, everyone else can see our faces or at least our eyes above our masks. um, And we don't really see our own face and what... Um, what that can give away um, in terms of our mood or what we're saying might not match exactly our tone or our facial expressions or our body language and all of that kind of, um, you know, sometimes you don't know what you're projecting and other people are taking a lot from that and, and um, interpreting that in a different way than what you mean them to interpret and there's just a lot going on in all of these interactions that we're making a lot of split second yeah and, and a lot of that has to do because by definition of phys- being a physician you're constantly doing a physical exam right you're observing at your entire <laughs> environment constantly right observation that's the first thing that's the first part of a physical exam is observation um so you walk in the room and you're constant. You're reading the room. You're looking at the people in the room. You're reading their relationship. How are they interacting? How is this patient interacting with me? Um, and you're just observing. So you're constantly observing the feedback you get, the the comments you get, and um, the conversation you're having. And this goes back to this point of this seven thirty eight fifty five rule. So a lot of the concepts in this feedback, thanks for the feedback book, are similar to the concepts in another book, which is really good, which is uh, negotiating as if, you know, don't split the difference, negotiate as if your life depended on it, um, which is basically talking about active listening, which, you know, thanks for the feedback talks about, but it talks about the body language piece. So when you're communicating with someone, and that's why sometimes it was weird when we started wearing the masks all the time, because 55% of communication is body language, 38% is voice and tone, and then 7% is what the words actually are coming out of someone's mouth. So that's why that's, so that's huge, right? So I can't wow. see yeah, that's a- body language. I can't see your face. You know, you talk about, I think you talk about this, uh, Dr. Hageman, about letting your um, face, you know, features kind of drip through. Um, 
you can only see people's eyes. You, you can you don't see people you yeah, just see people's eyes and then this is especially true with all the electronic communication we do right everyone reads an, an email mm -hmm. different than it was written um people are reading it there's no syntax you don't get any of the visual you don't get any of the voice you just have that seven percent and the rest is up to you to interpret based on your relationship with the author of the email so that's why a lot of electronic communication can create a lot more mm -hmm. problems because people read things differently than they were written um, because they don't have the voice or they assign a voice and tone to the, to the email. And then they have no body language component to figure out what's go goes along with it. Um, so the, I mean, I can't say enough about this piece. Just giving voice to all of these issues. And I think Lauren hearing that, you guys are talking about these things as part of wellness. I, I think we all have to continue to remember that. Yeah. I don't know. We have to promote getting uncomfortable, right? <laughs> this, this whole year dealing with COVID and, and coming through a lot of the issues that have come up in 2020 and, and early 2021 is about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Um, that probably goes for feedback too, right? giving it, getting it. It's just, and we have to make time for it. Though. We have to at least have time. To right. I think just you're kind of also, you know, alluding to moment. what Dr. Cabelli mentioned, like you were saying, the, the idea of radical candor, that we should have that. And I've thought about that a lot since she said that, even as I've spoken with medical students um, or like had challenging interactions. And mm -hmm. isn't it better to just be honest? And I think probably yes, but I think we all have to buy in in order for that to be successful because otherwise you'll have a few people who are being very honest and a lot of people who don't like that. Um, so it's just a little bit of a culture shift where, you know, we all want, we all want honest <laughs> feedback. We honestly do. We're just scared to get it sometimes. So I think we have to be willing to give it and it, it is hard. We're scared to give it and we're sometimes scared to get it. But you, you're right, Dr. Cruz, like we want, we know when we're being spun right. to like we're adults, like we just want people to be real. Just be real with me, you know, like just <laughs> tell me like, hey, you know, X, Y, Z, this is the, this is the deal. You know, I'm just being, I mean, we learn this with in communication with patients, right? Like just, they want it direct and right. sensitive, right? Like that's the, and that's the rat, you know, the radical candor two by two table. Um, that's essentially what that is, is uh, you want to be in a dimension where you're both, you're direct and you're sensitive. Physicians by nature tend to be indirect and super sensitive, uh, not super sensitive, right. but you know, sensitive we're, because we're, we're, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think on that, yeah. Well, I think that's called ruining so, empathy. If but I that's, remember that's, the, that's the paradigm, right? <laughs> so the, the, the optimal paradigm oh. is to be in the radical candor where you're direct, but you're sensitive yeah. about it. You're not, you're not, you know, the one example, you know, you're not, in, you're not direct, but mm -hmm. insensitive, which would be on the kind of opposite end of that um, dimension. Um, I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Lauren, where did you grow up? Ah, okay. Yeah. And I grew up in, you know, the upper Midwest, um, 
Minnesota and Wisconsin. No, not in Indiana and I feel either. Like <laughs> in Minnesota and Wisconsin, we are not radically candor. Yeah. candid. <laughs> I, I remember. Like kind of in general. Somebody um, gave me the example I mean, I you know, speaking of Indiana. I mean, the person who kind of someone who is direct and insensitive when I first learned that those two dimensions, that model, they gave me the example yeah. of Bobby Knight. He's someone who is very direct and very insensitive. So Bobby Knight. Imagine him in an OR, coach, like there would be Indiana. things thrown everywhere. Instruments would be flying. <laughs> yeah, that's chairs would be flying. Um but the the and, and you know I think what we're trying to figure out is what's that balance and and you're right in the I grew up in central Missouri I mean you don't the, you're kind of a little well I guess it's if they don't like it well maybe I'll just adapt to whatever you know they they want and you're constantly just um, you know right, adapting right? to others instead of you know and, and it goes too far. Um, so the, it's always striking a balance, but this has been, I mean, I think this book and similar stories have been great exercises in personal growth. And I would encourage anyone to read anyone who's ever given feedback or received it should really think about reading this book, spending the time or the audio book, you know, one and a half <laughs> speed will get you there pretty quickly. Every <laughs> to just point out for you know the residents and and the trainees too is that it hasn't always been I mean I think there's been a lot of silent communication in medical training in the past and we're really trying to change that and and open up more yeah like we're all still learning directed feedback but I don't know that we're that good at it so um knowing that we're also learning how to give the perfect <laughs> amount of feedback at the right time when everybody's in the perfect mood for it and very receptive. <laughs> um, so I think just knowing that, you know, I think that question that you guys were asking, am I, am I good enough? Um, you know, we're asking the same things all the time. We all are of ourselves all the time throughout our whole career. And, and the answer is just yes, we are. We all are meant to be here and we're all helping each other and we're inspiring each other and we're picking each other up off the court when we fall down. And um, I, I agree with you that it just matters so much who your teammates are in this process because yeah. I think we all are meant to be well, here. And and I we wanted to help each other. One other thing I didn't, through. I don't think I really appreciated until I became an attending was um, how much time attendings probably spend asking like, not only, you know, as a resident, you're like, oh, did I do that right? Did, did that delivery go right? Or what could I have done differently after the fact? But attendings do that too. And I remember as a resident thinking that they would, you know, they didn't probably spend much time about it. And maybe they're, you know, maybe they didn't. <laughs> but um, I actually have come to, I, I actually have come to appreciate that. <laughs> I think they all do. And they're all doing it constantly. Like, did I give the right kind of feedback? Did, what, could I have done that differently? Uh, man, I probably botched that feedback episode. Like, I, I think, I think when I was a resident, I used to think as my attending, like they're doing <laughs> yes. everything, they're giving the feedback because that's the way it's supposed to be given. And like, you just kind of rolled with it. And then you're kind of like, I don't know if that's really the best way to give the feedback, but I guess that's how it's supposed to be because they're the attending kind of this kind of narrow minded. I, I kind of had this narrow minded thought about it, but I mean, I've come to learn that that's actually not the case. And we're constantly, whatever level of training you're, you're at, you're constantly 
evaluating your performance, whatever it is. And of course, based on your personality, you'll do it more or less, but you're constantly doing something. You're constantly assessing yourself. I mean, I've heard, I think I was going to make a joke and say, so you're telling me it never gets better, but I think, I think no. that anybody <laughs> who talks about like the constant idea of lifelong learning in medicine, I have heard people say that the moment, the moment that you stop questioning yourself is the time that you stop growing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's, yeah. there's a balance. Like I was saying before, I think it can definitely be maladaptive, but yeah. I think yeah. if you're not questioning yourself, you should probably readdress why that is and question that. But it, I think it's, I think it is a good thing. Like it drives us to be better and we just have to find out how to, how to do it in a way that's productive instead of negatively impacting our wellness. Yeah. One of, Yeah. One of my role models in residency, exactly. he was a GYN oncologist. Um, he he was constantly reinventing himself. I remember he was like, "Yeah, I, mean, I got to do this robot thing. It's real. It's it's we got to do it. Endometrial cancer. Like I just got to do it." So he just like started doing robot. He's like, "I got to do more lab processing. <laughs> so I got to do that." But he was always reinventing himself. And I thought, and you hear this in sports all the time. And, you know, like you, you got to reinvent, you got to change, you got to try to change with the time, da, 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 da. And I remember, so I viewed reading this book, reading, you know, uh, understanding more about the social justice issues, you know, taking it upon yourself to build yourself to learn more so that you can, because the world is constantly changing around you, your professional environment, your specialty is constantly changing. And I think you have a duty to try to you know, invest some energy into being a part of that uh, change. And when you, to Dr. Kuss's point, I think when you stop, um, you got to wonder like, what, is this a good time to stop or should it, should, is there something different I should be doing? So I don't know that, that point resonates. I don't know. (laughs) It does get better, but you, you kind of, I guess the point I'm trying to, I guess the point I'm trying to make is it gets Mm -hmm. better, but it also among all the things that you have to do, I think you you still want to invest in your own right. personal growth along the way, um, in some in some way, and hopefully we can provide. You know, hopefully there are role models that are doing that. And this this episode hopefully is an inspiration <laughs> for people. Yeah. You're an inspiration, doctor. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, I, you know, I was going to, you know, yeah. I wanted to I, I wanted to bring it up and. Um, you know, Dr. Kuss and I worked together on a day in the operating room the where it just day, wasn't actually. a good day. It was the worst day I've ever and... had in an operating room. <laughs> and, and, and Dr. Hageman actually <laughs> was th- also there, um, to, to support us. Um, it was, well, oh. it, what we, it was, it, it, we had that. a choice yeah. about it... what, what kind of day we were going to make it, I think is the point. And, I'd like to think that we collectively decided to make it a good day, even though everything around was, was falling down. So we tried to focus on, Hey, you know, what did we, what could we, what did we learn? What happened here? Why did this happen? Okay. I learned a lot. What did we learn? Because no one would. Yeah. I think, Mm -hmm. I think we all did, but I don't, instead of, because we, if, because if you start your day, in a bad mood, the rest, you know, we still had the rest of the day. So we had a choice to make. And I think we 
collectively made a choice that we're, we're, we're going to stay positive and we're just going to learn from these things and support because we're all in it. The OR team, everyone, we're all in this together for the rest of this day. So we can either be crusty and, you know, snipe at each other about things and point fingers, or we can work together to continue to go through the day. And, you know, it was cool. The OR team was hustling, you know, residents, fellows were hustling. Um, so it, we, we made a mountain out of, or we made a, <laughs> we made some lemonade. I was going to say, I think lemons, that I like guess. making that choice and thinking about it as an active choice was like that all in <laughs> itself is a learning experience for me because I do think it comes from the top down and thinking about it when I'm in my own OR, I, I think that when you're the leader in the OR, you have to be the one who makes that choice because it trickles down to your fellows and to your residents. And then it trickles down to the OR staff, like you mentioned. Um, Like I've seen it go in an opposite, in the opposite direction before. And then you have a frustrated resident who's frustrated towards a medical student. And then you have a medical student who's being rude to the scrub tech. And then a scrub tech who's being rude to the person cleaning the room. And it becomes Mm -hmm. this like circle of negativity. Um, And I think that Mm -hmm. as physicians especially in the OR we have the ability to kind of change the tide from that standpoint or decide how the tide's gonna go I guess when those things happen and I don't think it has to be when bad things happen saying you know like yeah this was a bad thing that happened and choosing to be positive moving forward is 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 hard but definitely something we can all do but I also think back to times when you know I think we're all pretty egocentric too right so if I'm really worried about how am I doing in the OR how am I performing what am I doing as like multiple learners and um, I'm not ready for that or ready to really take on what everyone else might be bringing into the OR that day you know certain insecurities about operation um, you know certain bad times on call over the weekend or something, you know, like just different things that you're carrying, different burdens that everyone is carrying into the room. Um, And I don't know. I mean, I think that OR can at the best be a really fun place where we all working together, but it can also, you know, if you don't have the right, if not everybody brings the right attitude, it can really go south quickly. And um I don't know. I, I think you're right. We all have choices to make when we step foot in the OR or step yeah, foot and I think the as, office. Or and the message here sense. to the residents and fellows Making- and then, you know, people listening is you're in, when you're the attending or when you're the, you know, person and chief resident or the third year kind of at the top of the um, decision tree in, the, in your particular setting, you kind of people are looking to you. Their eye is constantly on you and seeing how you're going to handle the situation um because they're going to take cues from you and if you're going to be mean to a nurse then they think it's okay to be mean to a nurse and that's if you're going to be you know i don't know i think there's a the operating room is a great litmus test for how you handle adversity um and medicine in general is full of it so um <laughs> shout out to dr coos because i know it was a hard I mean, honestly, I know it was a hard day for, and I know Dr. Anderson also yeah. was like, oh, Jesus. Um, but, but, but again, the takeaway, like, <laughs> I wasn't, at no point was I like, oh my God, this, you know, this resident, this fellow, they can't operate, they should never operate. No, like, it, it happens. And, you know, it's incumbent upon me to do better, to 
put them in a situation to succeed and then to also respond when something goes awry, no matter how severe or not it is in a way that provides evaluation, yeah, appreciation, and, and coaching. So I I'd like to think also, we, we accomplished when it that, that happens, day, like from a, some form or fashion, receiving feedback when you're the person who makes a mistake, I think, while we don't, obviously, you don't want to ever make a mistake. I think we learn so much from it. And more importantly, like how to shake it off. Like, what we were talking about with sports when you right when you fail in an operating room there are so many eyes on you yeah. and you can let it be bad enough like I've seen or heard stories of situations like that where the resident was you know offered the opportunity to leave for the rest of the day or like take a break and I think then like you learn so much when you just mm-hmm. shake it off and keep going and like you have to learn how to manage complications and I think that mm-hmm. it's a hard learning experience, but I think I learned a lot from that. So, well, this grit thing—I mean, this is grit, right? You know, and there's a lot of literature I think about grit and how people—you know—people who do some sort of activity where you're judged or your performance is judged um, <clears throat> tend to have grit or maybe. Um, they, they bounce back quicker um, because they're used to being told or they're used to failing and then bouncing back. That's why we hear this all the time. Like people fail. Oh, they didn't. Uh, you know, how many times have we heard the Nick Saban story about how he failed with the Miami you know, football coach of University of Alabama. Right. He failed in the NFL and then he came back and learned from it. You know, all these kind of stories. Uh, sports is littered with them, but so is corporate America. So is medicine of people failing and, bouncing back and it's all about how you handle it you know I tell my kids that you know like hey you didn't make the team it's all right you know what did you what are you going to do you have two choices um, so we could talk about this all day I guess we <laughs> <laughs> shut it down that's right we're gonna have to wrap it up then or we can go do another Peloton. Or no, I'm gonna go pack for my vacation. I'm on vacation. Yeah, right. Board, so. yeah, yeah. Oh, even better. <laughs> that was, wow, that's like really what's, what's it called? Good the job. <laughs> So that's a lot of appreciation. Hold on, hold on. That was really, that was really good. I liked how you practiced and then synthesized a very, a great sentence with no, with no error in flow. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate your time. And um, I do think in an evaluative standpoint, that went really well. Um, That was really fun. Lauren, have fun with your vacation. Thanks as always, Andrea. I I thought this was great. All right. Take care, guys.